Somebody said once, and I think it was brilliant. They said, voting is not a Valentine. You're not in love. You are making a chess move for a world that you want, right? It's a small move and you want to go in the direction of the world that you want, right? And I thought, yeah, it's all a chess move. So we need everyone to get involved and make a chess move, the right move. The thing about Democrats is we fall in love. Republicans fall in line. Yes. Hello, and welcome to the Politics Girl podcast. I'm your host, Lee McGowan. Let's get into it. Today's pod is a candid conversation with David Bender, Democratic strategist, author, and former talk radio host. David has spent the past five decades as a political activist, beginning at the age of 12 when he took what he calls a leave of absence from seventh grade to become a full-time volunteer for Robert Kennedy's presidential campaign. He went on to report on the presidential campaigns of Richard Nixon, George McGovern, and Herbert Humphrey. He was a key aide to the legendary liberal activist Allard Lowenstein, who was a pivotal figure in both the civil rights movement and the anti-Vietnam War movement. David served on the national field staff of California Governor Jerry Brown's 76 presidential campaign and Senator Edward Kennedy's 1980 presidential campaign. When JFK Jr. launched a political and cultural magazine, George, David was his first West Coast contributing editor. David was also the host of Air America's show, Politically Direct, where he'd regularly interview influential voices in politics and media like Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama, Al Gore, and Gore Vidal. And he was the co-host of Air America's Ring on Fire. Dubbed Rachel Maddow's political guru, he joined her show as a contributor in 2008 and frequently guest hosted the show when she was away. David also has an extensive film, television, and writing career, but if we don't want this introduction to be 17 hours long, I'm going to leave it to you to look that up for yourself. I'm having him on today because he has been involved in politics and public issues for his entire life. And as we finish up with the first phase of the 1-6 hearings, I couldn't think of anyone better to break down what we heard, what we know, and where we go from here than David. So without further ado, please welcome my guest, political expert, author, and key player in politics and media for over 50 years, David Bender. Welcome, David. Uh, 50 years is a lie. I will deny it. It's part of the big <laughs> lie, this lie that is, it's, it's, I've been, uh, you know, 50 years, I was pre-utero. Uh, yeah. I was going to say, are you mad at me for saying 50 since you're only 39 years old? You know, my favorite part of the hearings thus far, I mean, it, you know, it's hard to say favorite because it sounds like it's a show. It's not a show, but th- there was a moment that you had to be gleeful about when, uh, during the hearings, Liz Cheney said, Donald Trump is a 76-year-old man. He is not an impressionable child. And you know that in Mar-a-Lago, there was spaghetti on the wall uh, because that made him crazy. Someone said his age aloud. And I I am 66. I, 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 I own it. It's in the public domain. You can do the math. I was 12 years old in 1968 when I worked for Robert Kennedy. I've been saying that since it happened. So it, unless people are bad at math, uh, my age is my age. And I, <laughs> but Donald Trump, you can just feel, you could have felt his head exploding at that moment when she said it. I felt the same way in the hearings, the eighth night of the hearings, when uh, they had those outtakes from him trying to do the thing at the podium. And he was like, yesterday is a hard word, you know, and you're like, oh, you know, he lost his mind over that. In fact, that's when he started tweeting on Truth Social. Well, you know, it occurred to me that it was almost like the setup for a song parody. Uh, Yesterday, it's a word I just don't know how to say. Now my troubles just won't go away. Oh, how do I say yes yesterday? It's a song. I know. That actually is a pretty good song. It'll be like a new producer's. There we go. Exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> Beijing, Bialystok, Moon. No, it, I know. There it, we go. Next, next musical. Here it comes. David and I have put it together. Lee, let's be clear. He, uh, he fought all the way to the Supreme Court to keep those outtakes away from the public. He knows what he looks like when he is making mistakes. That's why we never saw any of the outtakes from The Apprentice. In fact, for a lot of reasons, including you know all of the language he used, uh, potentially racist, misogynistic. 
that's never been released, but these, he went to the court to prevent the archives from releasing what was seen in those eight hearings. And it was devastating and he knew it. And, yeah. And there it was. I was quite struck last night at how impressive the committee has been. Um, because if you look at the eighth night of hearings and they did the 187 minutes. And if you haven't watched the eighth day of hearings, I highly recommend you go back and watch it. It's a damning account of the complete dereliction of duty of the president of the United States, who is still the de facto leader of today's Republican party. Um, actually, if you haven't watched all of the hearings, I highly recommend you go back and watch them to get a full picture of what happened on the 6th of January and how close we were. And quite frankly, how close we still are to losing our democracy. But what I was struck was how many things the White House got rid of from that day, that there were no call logs, no photographs, no, they knew that what they were doing was terrible. They knew who they were working for. They knew what they were holding up and they got rid of it all. In fairness, who wants to be fair to these people? But in fairness, there were moments that none of them could do anything about. Trump closed the door. He said, no photographs. That never happens. There's never a moment when the official White House photographer is not allowed in, in the history of the presidency, in the modern presidency. That just doesn't happen. But right. he closed the door. Nobody went in unless he called them in. The calls he made, he made on his cell phone, which we don't yet have access to. I don't know if we will. But the, the point is, we don't know other than from other people who he called, like senators who he was calling literally after the riot had happened. We know that from their end of the calls. But again, I don't want to say I'm being fair that it was they protecting him. He did this himself. This was a one-man show. It, it all The buck not only stops with him, he hid it from everybody else. That was the thing. Remember, if, if in fact many of the other people know about what's going on with the electors, like, say, the White House counsel, uh, it might slow it down. So they circumnavigated. And it goes back to the same thing when Rudy Giuliani was in uh, the Ukraine. Uh, it, it, all of these parallel shadow governments that Trump set up to support what he could do. He calls Sidney Powell. He calls Mike Flynn. He, it, and all of this is done. This is, this is why this is so incredibly important. Because for the first time, this is very different. Richard Nixon had no idea that there were people breaking into the Watergate. When he found out about it, he covered it up. That had been ordered differently. It was his reaction to this. This, is, this started with Trump, and it needs to end with Trump. And listen, if, if there's anyone that's been in a coma or hasn't actually been interested in uh, what they see as politics, which is actually not politics at all, but the future of our country and our democracy, just to give a little background on what David and I are going to talk about today is on the 6th of January, 2021, thousands of people walked from the Trump rally to United States Capitol building after being told for months their democracy had been stolen. And it was up to them, the true patriots of America, to stop this deal and take their country back. They broke through barricades, they murdered and beat police officers, they forcibly gained access to the Capitol with the express purpose of stopping the certification of the election and the peaceful transfer of power. But because of the 1-6 committee and the hearings we have now watched the complete first season of, right, um, we now know that these rioters and insurrectionists were only one part of a multi-step plan by the President of the United States and his co-conspirators, which we cannot forget about because... There wouldn't be no one-man show without that full audience and full stagehands to keep that show going, to overturn the 2020 election and stay in power despite having lost the election. So January 6th was the last and messiest piece of the plan, but it was the actions of a desperate man in his spineless enablers. So does that seem like a reasonable that, synopsis that of what we have been doing? Completely reasonable synopsis, and it, it is bone-chilling. When you think about what you just said, if the implications yeah. of this, this is the office that was held by Thomas Jefferson, by George Washington, by Abraham Lincoln, by Franklin Roosevelt, by John Kennedy. This is that same office. It, it is inconceivable. And, and for me, the visceral moment was 
when it happened on January 6th, I've spent so much time in the Capitol. And to watch that building be desecrated for the first time ever, uh, a Confederate flag being dragged through. That didn't happen during the Civil War. I know. But it happened in, in our lifetime and, in fact, within the memory of everyone here. And it was so horrific. I think a lot of people, honestly, if, if, if I'm processing now what happened with these hearings, I realize some of it is PTSD for a lot of the people involved. One of the most powerful moments from the last hearing was that masked audio voice of the security person, probably someone from the Secret Service, who, whose voice had to be disguised for fear of his own protection, who talked about and he said he didn't like remembering it. It was hard to talk about. But remember what he said on that tape. He said, those Secret Service uh, detail with Mike Pence were using that time to reach out to their families to say goodbye because they thought they were going to lose their lives. Yeah. And, and I can tell you that I, even in saying it now, I'm, I'm feeling again how I felt when I heard it. It's what it's how we felt around 9-11. It's, yep. it's how we felt on that day when we heard members of Congress had called their families. I heard from a number of member, members of Congress who've said that, that they made those calls. I made I may not make this. I love you. I, I love the kids. So when you when you realize what he did, Donald Trump did to jeopardize people's lives and to make them that afraid and that ripple effect to the country, that fear, that's why a lot of people have looked away because it's just hard to stare at the sun. You feel like you're going to go blind looking at it, but you have to look at it. And that's what the yeah. committee has done. It's made us, in a way that we can, it's made us understand that this bad thing, I always think of Nuremberg. The, the, Germans, the Germans did some of the worst things in the history of modern civilization, any civilization, modern or not, for a period of, from 1933 to 1945. And then after the war, those hearings, the Nuremberg hearings, made the Germans look at themselves. And Germany today has become one of the most, probably a better democracy than we have. I would say so. I would argue that, yeah. Absolutely, because they purged, the, they had to look at it. They had to own it. They had to take responsibility for it. Well, I would say they didn't have to. They did. Right. They chose exactly to. Right. Well, and the world, the world also helped impose it on them. That's what this, these hearings are doing. That's what those people, and, and I, I can tell you, I've been, I've been fortunate to be a part of the coalition that's been working on building support for these hearings. So I started before the first hearing to try and build a groundswell. That this is the court of public opinion now. Before the Department of Justice or, or Fulton County takes action, we have to move the needle in the court of public opinion, which was about 50-50 at that point. A lot of people, again, it was in the rearview mirror. They didn't want to look at it. It was too painful. What's happened over the course of those eight hearings is the needle has moved. And I've been watching yeah. it very well. I'm sure you have, too, that these numbers are astonishing. Uh, as of the week before the last hearing, so between the seventh and eighth hearing, the numbers were that over 80% of Democrats, over 80% of independents, and over 80% of Republicans were watching either very closely or somewhat closely, paying attention. And that was the, that was triple where we were before the hearing started. So yeah, and I think the hearings are just absolutely essential. I think, like you said, a lot of people wanted to put it in the rearview mirror. And what we know now, having watched it, even if you didn't watch it in its entirety and you're seeing clips of it, is the facts. And the facts are Trump lost. He knew he'd lost. His people told him he'd lost. He went ahead and said he won anyway. He fundraised on that. He used the bully pulpit of the presidency with all the weight that goes with that to claim it. And despite everything, the most shameless crazies around him, you know, propped him up while he did it, knowing it wasn't true. He took his 
false claims to court, which is his right. But having no evidence, he lost over 60 cases. And all of his original legal team ended up bailing to save their own careers, right? And this left him surrounded by this group of low lives telling him what he wanted to hear. Emperor has no clothes style, right? And then I don't know if he just wanted to believe it, so he made it true in his mind, or if he lost contact with reality, because I think all of that is kind of irrelevant. He had a goal, and he was following through on that goal. He had no interest in what the actual facts were. He wanted to stay president. It was a great deal for him, and he would do anything to make it happen. And hundreds of people, including people who still make the laws in the country today, tried to help him do it. So these people have put two and a half centuries of democracy on the line for their own desires, their own power, and their lives have corrupted and divided our country, our faith in democracy, in the very idea of the peaceful transition of power, right? The actions of these people that we have been hearing about through these eight hearings have also corrupted and delegitimized the Republican Party itself, who not only have this liar and traitor as their flag bearer, but have Trump's baseless lies as the basis of all of the new voting laws they've put around the country to favor themselves, right? So this isn't over, even knowing what's going on now. The danger hasn't gone away. And whether Trump is held accountable or not, and I personally believe he will be, this doesn't start or stop with one corrupt, entitled man and his lifetime of criminal behavior. This is a far bigger problem that we need to address head on. You're absolutely right. And one of the things that we're going to see in November is at every level, Republican candidates, if they've lost an election, will not concede. That's just going to be the new norm. And how does that work in a democracy? Like, how do we do that? It doesn't work. They simply say, I contest. They will go to court. If they don't accept the court ruling, they will continue to build up their supporters and say that it was stolen from me. This will go on and on and on. And when there are people, and part of what this plan is, very clearly, and Steve Bannon has been a part of this, and let's just hope we're going to get a a guilty verdict and take him away from a microphone for a while if he's locked up, which is a very real possibility at any moment. But here's here's what I've seen coming from Bannon. He has been enlisting poll workers by the tens of thousands to help create this smoke and mirrors around an election there's fraud. I saw some people who had thumb drives or whatever it is. People's signatures didn't match. And, and they will create the distraction. And the, it's, it's exactly what Bill Barr, no hero, did when the report came out. He, he didn't release it, but he described it. So if you don't see the votes, it's no obstruction, no collusion at the polling places. They will say, there was obstruction. There was uh, cheating in, by the Democrats. And all they have to do is say it, Lee. They'd say it now, and, and therefore they believe it or they make sure everyone else believes it. And there is no peaceful transition. And no Democratic Republic can survive if you don't accept. And Adam Kinsinger was eloquent to this point. If you do not accept the rule of law. It's not enough to make the laws. You have to believe that they apply equally to everyone. And these people no longer do. And how many of them there are and how dangerous and insidious they are, I, I don't know. But it's, you're, you're so right in saying it's not just about the one man. What we can, Trump, Trump has now infected the bloodstream. And that infection has to be treated for what it is. It's spreading. But removing him as the source of the infection, he's like the bat in the in the cave that started the virus. Uh, and it is not the China virus. It is, but but it, he's the bat. But we're all now paying the price for that one action. But he was he was a bat who knew what he was doing. He chose to yeah. infect this country with his poison. Yeah, he was a bat with an agenda, and now we're all poisoned. And the thing is, is that. Poison spreads if it's not stopped. We need to find an antidote and we need to give it to the country because a poisoned America, a toxic America will poison the world. And we can't pretend this is simply an American issue, right? And ultimately, I'm just, I love having you here because you're passionate about politics in a way that I am. And you you have been since you were young. You know, you have, 
I was saying in your introduction, the story of you as a seventh grader going to work for a Kennedy campaign is so special to me because it shows where your passion has always lied. You know, you have watched American politics evolve over the years and you were there when people were afraid to have a Catholic president because he might bring religion into the equation, right? And now you're living through a time where the opposite party is attempting to rule us with the Christian religion, right? So the the dichotomy of that is so interesting, right? Like I became aware of American politics in high school in the George H.W. Bush era, right? I grew up in Canada. So Reagan was on my radar because he was very popular, but I was in elementary school in the 80s. So I didn't really care, right? The first news story I really remember was the Challenger exploding. Like that's when news and I started paying attention, right? We all watched it live in school and it was so shocking. I'm sure you can remember. I do. And I can remember when I first learned what nuclear war was and crying on the stairs going up to my bedroom because I was so horrified that man could create something so horribly destructive and that the entire population of the world was at the mercy of a small handful of leaders that might push a button. And I remember asking my mom, why would anyone launch one when it just meant that other people would launch and it would just be mutually assured, you know, destruction, which of course I didn't say when I was 10, but I, that was the gist I was going for. This idea that, that we've given these men, and at the time it's always been men, this much control over the world. And I don't say that randomly. I say that because my 10-year-old fears are still the fears of leaders today trying to figure out what to do with Putin as he attacks Ukraine, yeah. right? The, this threat of nuclear war is still on the table, right? So I... I, I think about politics in a different way, and you've had way more experience than I have. You know, I came of age in college in the Clinton administration, right? And I was a, a Canadian outsider watching it and thinking, like, who cares? You know, America's doing really well. He's a good leader. You know, men in power have behaved badly for all time. I mean, if his wife is fine, like, move on. You know, it doesn't really affect the country. But those Clinton impeachment years feel to me. And you tell me what you think, but they feel to me like the beginning of the modern Republican Party, this party that would find anything to hold on to to discredit their opponent, this hypocrisy of a party that would literally spend two years deciding if a blowjob was worth an impeachment, and then 20 years later would nominate a man who bragged about sexual assault as part of his personality, right, and voted to not impeach that same man twice for blackmailing a foreign ally and leading an insurrection, right? So I feel like when I started paying attention to politics, those elements are all still in play. It actually started, and, and it, it plainly the impeachment was a part of this process. But we, I track it to Newt Gingrich becoming Speaker of the House. That was, uh, that yeah. was in 1990, uh, this backbench Georgia Republican started a process. He changed the way people spoke to each other. There was something in Congress and, and, and it's Congress people. We heard it in the hearings. My friend, the gentle lady from Virginia, Ms. Luria, or my, my colleague and my good friend, I yield to that, that collegiality and, and, and that language was so important for so long because it meant there was civility in our discourse. We are now in what I call and have called for five years at least an uncivil war. It is it is the incivility stupid. That That's what's going on when you use rhetoric as uh, Donald Trump has used. But go back to Newt Gingrich. He started changing the way people spoke to each other. And he said when he became speaker, we no longer call the Democrats our opponent that we want to defeat. We call them the enemy that we want to destroy. He said that. He said, we have to change the way. He was smart enough to realize he's not a stupid man, deeply venal, but not stupid. And, and he said, we have to do that. And they heard him. And they started using that that rhetoric of enemies. And now we hear enemies of the state, and enemies of the people, and the media is the enemy of the people. And Trump has simply taken that and blown it up. He is like a giant helium balloon. Uh, I think of him as a Zeppelin 
that is is about to go down in flames. And uh, my yeah. words for that are, oh, the inhumanity. Right. <laughs> it's it's it, but but it started in my view, and, and I, I take your point about seeing it, you know, sort of uh, come to a crescendo with the Clinton impeachment, and, and there's no question it did. But remember, Bill Clinton left office uh, even more popular. Two thirds of the American people felt that you know it was a mistake to impeach him. But what happened after that, in this century, when? First, the Supreme Court decided that Floridians didn't have the right to vote, and therefore uh, George W. Bush was president and not Al Gore. And we move forward from that. And you you can just march through the American 21st century and see the decline of our politics start. This is exactly what I was going to say, because this is when I started paying attention during George W. Bush, because I lived in New York during 9-11. I was there. You know, that's where I lived. The view from my apartment was the Twin Towers. And I watched the Supreme Court give the election to Bush when it was quite obvious Gore was the majority that the people wanted, the majority that people wanted. And also, it was just so undemocratic the way I watched it play out, right? It's when I started to care about American politics because, again, it all comes back to where we are today. So many of the same players are in the game today. And I'm not just talking about these thousand-year-old senators. I'm talking about the enablers and the low lives and the criminals that surrounded Donald Trump and who helped turn our country and democracy into the dumpster fire it is right now. The crisis we find ourselves in is not just a Donald Trump crisis, right? It's a Republican Party crisis. These are There are key people from that Gore-Bush election that are a problem today. Roger Stone played a major part. The Supreme Court deciding the election played a major part. Election security played a major part. Corrupted, you know, corruption in general played a major part. And you think the whole election came down to 500 votes in one state that stopped counting the votes and it happened to be a state run by the other nominee's brother? Like, you're like, what? That sort of level of far-reaching corruption, the kind of do whatever it takes, no matter how sketchy it is to win, it, that's what permeates the American Republican Party today. Absolutely. And we can't forget that the legal team on the Bush case included Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett, right? And from that Bush presidency, we got the Justice Alito. So I feel like what we're dealing with today, what happened during that presidency, that's what laid the groundwork for what we're dealing with now. And I feel like it's pretty full circle that really Dick Cheney was in charge of that presidency. And now it's Liz Cheney, who's the vice chair of the committee, his daughter, attempting to right the ship you know, to return our faith in democracy, to uphold the importance of institution and the institution of the presidency itself and some semblance of order. And I feel like... An irony right? moment here. I, this is an, I have an irony deficiency. This is, this is crazy that it's Liz Cheney, the daughter of right? a man who did everything he can, and she still defends a lot of... Let's, let's not she, no, She's no hero, but she no, believes in not, democracy the same way I do. She is a hero. She is a hero. Uh, okay, I think that's fair. She is standing up, in my view, yeah. I, I would call her a hero for putting her country over her party and herself. She's going to almost certainly lose her primary in, in Wyoming. Which is unfortunate, I, yeah, because we really, we should talk about that. It's the reality. It, it's almost impossible politically for her to do what she has done and survive. And we've seen it happen in other districts. People, uh, Republicans, who try to run on the moral decision they made to vote for impeachment. There was one in one of the Carolinas recently lost his primary. Uh, one of the 10 Republicans who voted for impeachment in the House. Liz Cheney is the face of that decision. And Wyoming was, I think, the second biggest Trump margin state in the country. And it's a Republican primary. It's, a, you know, even though Democrats can vote in it, there, there just aren't enough people. Did you watch that debate? Uh, I didn't see the debate. Oh, Lord. I Tell mean, me. it was the blind leading the blind up in there. It was uh, a bunch of, it's like they'd been given a bunch of mega talking points that they couldn't quite string together into a cohesive sentence. And everyone was trying to outdo each other in a Trumpian way. And none of them are Trump. Trump has a skill. He's good at what he does. You know, he, it's a gift. 
Um, he's a reality star. You know, right. these people were not. And Liz Cheney just looked like the adult in the room up there. And yet she didn't have the, she doesn't have the will of the people that love that rhetoric. And uh, I just, I get concerned because part of the one six committee that we're talking about, one of the reasons it works is because there are two Republicans sitting there, two Republicans that have, that make it bipartisan, that allow them to give subpoenas. And if Liz Cheney loses and Adam Kinzinger retires, where does that leave the committee? Uh, it leaves the committee. First off, Liz Cheney will lose but not leave the House until January. The biggest issue, of course, is what happens if the Republicans take the House in November. And then they can't. It's a, they can't. Well, I agree with you. They can't. And everything that we do between now and then has to make sure uh, do do all that anyone can do. This is all hands on deck, Lee. This is this is that moment, if ever there was a, uh, a five alarm fire, uh, that's the only thing larger is the climate crisis. But this yeah. is it. This is the but moment. But we can't deal with the climate crisis unless we solve this problem first, because one party doesn't believe in the climate crisis. They believe in profit. That's right. And and, and occasionally a Democrat who shall remain nameless, Joe Manchin. <laughs> Joe Manchin. It's <laughs> Joe Manchin. <laughs> also, uh, God bless you. Thank you. Thank you, too. It's also the, the, the problem that everything stems from whether or not Democrats are chairing these committees and are willing to hold hearings and move things forward. So flip the script and it, it, come January, uh, this committee will simply change. The 1-6 committee will investigate Nancy Pelosi for not having called the Capitol Police are taking the mythical 10,000 or 20,000 troops that Trump still claims he offered and she turned down. It's a lie. It's a disproven lie. He can't even settle on the number. It's between 10 and 20,000. OK, it's between one and two million like your crowd sizes. What number is that? Yeah, it's a made up number. And that's what we know. Okay, we could go on about this for about an hour, but we need to take a break to thank our sponsors who made this conversation possible. So we'll be right back after this with David Bender. So I'm home in Toronto doing all these ads and I'm visiting my people. Now my childhood friends who are still my best friends recently got into a whole conversation about all these extra supplements they were on. And I was like, why aren't you guys taking Athletic Greens? And they were like, the company from your show? And I was like, yeah, I talk about it all the time. It's amazing. And they said, is it really that good? And I was like, yeah. It's really that good. You wake up in the morning, you put one scoop of Athletic Greens into a glass of water and you drink it on an empty stomach. Right away, you're absorbing 75 high quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source superfoods, probiotics, adaptogens. You start your day off right and it helps your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and aging. You start looking forward to it. You sleep better, you recover faster, you're sharper, you don't need coffee at 4 p.m. It's less than one gram of sugar, no GMOs, no chemicals, no artificial anything. I can't really say enough about it. Why are you guys not taking it yet? <laughs> anyway, so I think about 10 people in my immediate life will be buying Athletic Greens uh, this week. But I want you to get the same benefit as my girls. So reclaim your health and arm your immune system with a convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop and a cup of water every day. And to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you one free year of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash politicsgirl. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash politicsgirl to take ownership over your health and set yourself up with the ultimate in daily nutrition. I literally don't do these ads for my health. I do them for yours. So I was recently super sick with E. coli. It was a horror show, and I'm not going to traumatize you with the terrible details, but I will say that coming out of it, I was very concerned about my gut health, and I was told that I needed to get on a probiotic immediately. So I was pretty psyched because I had just received a shipment of probiotics from our new sponsor, Aura Organic. Aura's Trust Your Gut Probiotic and Prebiotic Supplements contain some of the world's most powerful probiotic strains, along with prebiotics to help the good bacteria in your body thrive so the probiotics can work smarter and not harder. Probiotics support optimal digestive health and healthy gut bacteria. It's great support for bloating and common digestive issues. And a healthy mix of probiotics in your gut have been linked to a strong immune system in your body. Aura Organics is available in capsule or powder format, which you can just add to smoothies or an oatmeal. It has over 10,000 five-star reviews. And unlike other companies, Aura Organic has a strict commitment to produce only plant-based, cruelty-free products. 
They believe plants do it better for our health and for the planet. So if you'd like to try Aura products, then text POLITICS to 64000. That's POLITICS to 64000 and get 30% off your first subscription to Aura Organics. And if you're not happy for any reason, Aura Organics will give you your money back for 60 days, no questions asked. Just pick up your phone and type POLITICS to 64000. Message and data rates may apply. Terms available at AuraOrganics forward slash terms. I talk a lot about health on the show. The country is sick, but a lot of us, we're not feeling so great either. And there's a ton of new products out there to get people thinking outside of the box about how to make us feel better. And one of them is our new sponsor, Everlywell. Everlywell is digital healthcare designed for you. With over 30 at-home lab tests, you'll be able to choose the test that makes the most sense for you to get the answers you need. Anything from women's health tests to a food sensitivity test. Everlywell also has high quality vitamins and supplements to support your overall health. And you can choose from things like vitamin D or omega-3 fish oil. Here's how it works. Everlywell ships products straight to you with everything you need in one package. You take the home test, you collect your sample, and you use the included prepaid shipping to mail it back to the lab. Then the doctors review the results and send them to your phone or device in days. You can then take those results to your doctor to help guide you through the next steps. If you order the vitamins or supplements, you can add them to your daily routine right away. Over a million people already trust Everlywell to support their health and their wellness goals. And for listeners of the show, Everlywell is offering a special discount of 20% off an at-home lab test at everlywell.com slash politicsgirl. That's E-V-E-R-L-Y-W-E-L-L dot com slash politicsgirl for 20% off your next at-home lab test. When you know more, you can do more. Find out what you need for a healthier tomorrow with Everlywell today. This is a big day for sponsors and they've all been about health, but I'm always happy to talk about better help. As you know, I'm a huge advocate for therapy. I think therapy is one of the best things you can do for yourself. An hour a week focusing on you, your issues, your needs, your concerns is one of the best things you can do for a healthier life. We take care of our pets, our people, our outer body, our inner health. How about our minds? A healthy mind is an essential part of a healthy life. BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and live chat therapy sessions. It's more affordable than in-person therapy, and it can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. Our listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash politicsgirl. That's B-E-T-T-E-R help.com slash politicsgirl. We're keeping everything else healthy. Let's make sure we support what's going on inside our minds as well with betterhelp.com. So the only thing I can tell you is that if we can continue to do what we're doing, one thing I'm seeing from the data, and this to me is so crucial, uh, people are connecting the dots now. You you mentioned one thing that's very important is you mentioned uh, the justices. You mentioned that uh, we have Kavanaugh and Coney Barrett who report part of the uh, challenge to 2000. We have them on the court. There are three Trump justices appointed. Half of the six vote majority makes this the Trump court. It is the Trump court. And if we call it that, Lee, if we call it the Trump court, then we have to think about what that means. It means that and people are getting this now. They're getting a unified theme. What the hearings told us is that there was an effort to make it impossible for people's vote to count, to take away their right to vote, in essence, by nullifying it or, or overturning it through a coup. But they're connecting it now to the actions of the Trump court, which are taking away a woman's right to control her own body, and Clarence Thomas, who, by the way, was a sitting justice in 2000, one of the people who voted, he was the, since it was a 5-4 vote, all five of them meant each one was the decider. So Clarence Thomas, in his concurring opinion in 2000, Bush v. Gore said, you know, we ought to look at this whole thing about how the Electoral College is dictated by the Electoral Count Act. Uh, because that doesn't seem constitutional to me. It, it should be the states that can decide who the electors are. Exactly what the Trump plan illegally was, Clarence Thomas has invited for 22 years a case to come before the court to toss that and to say that the states can decide based on whatever state legislature chooses to believe. So if you're in Arizona 
if you're in Pennsylvania, if you're in Michigan, if you're in Wisconsin, all Republican legislatures, and they say, under the Clarence Thomas model, they say uh, the states have the right to determine who the electors are. It doesn't even matter how the people vote. People can vote overwhelmingly for the Democrat, but if they say the better person, remember our, the founding fathers in their Republican, lowercase r, wisdom, believed that the state legislatures could temper the passions of the people. Yeah, they were writing it for Donald Trump, not for this next election. They were writing for Donald Trump, but they were writing it the same way they wrote the U.S. Senate. You remember, it took a constitutional amendment. You don't remember it. I don't remember it. I'm, well, all right. I do remember it. It was 14 <laughs> or something like that. I'm but, just a baby. Yeah, well, and I, you know, I, I'm 143, but the, <laughs> the constitutional amendment that it took to take electing U.S. senators uh, to make that the fact didn't happen until the 20th century. So for the first 120 years of this country, more than that, senators were chosen by the state legislatures. And the idea was they had the wisdom to decide who should be a U.S. senator. The same logic is implicit in the Constitution that the legislatures of the state have the wisdom to decide who the electors should be. And if the people, that's why we don't have a pure democracy. It isn't just a popular vote. That's why the founders put in that damned electoral college. And it, it, it was great for its time. It's awful for this time. It makes no sense now, not with the size of the country. None, none whatsoever. But that, that uh, poison pill, if you will, and the founders didn't intend for it to be, but it's become that with 50 states, not 13 colonies. Right. What you got is a situation where if they succeed, if the court gets a case next term and says no. Which it's already agreed to take up. It's already agreed to take up. If they make that decision, the potential damage is irreversible because it means popular elections no longer determine the electors. That is something that we can only change with a, a, either a constitutional amendment or a bill that Mondaire Jones uh, in the House has already introduced and people laughed at him and he was completely right. Uh, the Supreme Court has been at nine uh, for, again, over 100 years because there used to be nine district courts, one justice for each district or appellate court. There are now 13. There are 13. And so he has introduced a bill that, and it only needs a simple majority to pass that would make it uh, 13 justices. And if President Joe Biden has one last act left in him, and please may he be okay from any malady, he would have the opportunity with a Democratic Senate uh, that isn't 50-50 to appoint four more justices. Now that changes the dynamic immediately. Is it court packing? No. It is reflecting the reality that, that we are a bigger country than we were 150 years ago but right. have real world implications. And I'm for that. I'm for that too. I think it's court expansion. I think the country's expanded. I think the court should expand. I also think the court should reflect the, the times yeah. and it doesn't currently reflect the times. Right. You think the court should be even bigger than 13? I, do, I personally do. I think the court, if you look at it, so you say, well, there's now 13 districts. I'd love to see there be 26 plus one. Yeah. Supreme Court justices, because then you could rotate a court of 13. You could rotate courts of nine. Yeah. You could say, uh, we don't know which which cases you're going to get. We don't know you're going to draw. We don't know which other justices you're going to work with. And that way, it's people could idea. do what they did with Dobbs and say, oh, we're bringing the case now because we know we've got the votes. You shouldn't know you've got the votes. It's not politics. It's justice. Justice is supposed to be blind. So if we had a bigger court, not only could they hear more cases, have more justice go through, justice would legitimately be blind again because they would be hearing what court case came before them, not what they had planned to do. Right now, you've got Clarence Thomas saying, bring us gay rights, bring us gay marriage, bring us all these things because we will vote the way you want us to. Right. And that's not justice and no one should should accept that that is justice. And I think the thing is, is that we have to understand that our laws only work, our courts only work, our money only works because we agree it has value or it has worth. 
But if you start going against complete will of the people over and over again, eventually people are going to say, well, I, I don't see you as the Supreme Court of the land. I see you as a political Christo-fascist rulers, and I don't accept your reality. And we can't have that. If you want to have legitimacy in the court, we have to re-legitimize it. So to me, expanding the court, if you were Joe Biden, would be what was best for the country, not what was best for the Democratic Party, but what was best for the country. And, and I wish you could write that speech because you've explained it in a way that takes it out of this whole idea of partisanship, court packing, all the rest of it. You, it, it and, and something that you've said has, has I'm going to take away from this conversation because it, 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 Rachel used... Rachel Maddow used the word um, anonymized in talking about the way uh, the anonymous voice that we heard from the Secret Service on, on the tape or whoever the security person was, anonymized. This would anonymize court decisions. Yes. Make it possible if it was just luck of the draw, which of those three nine court justices out of 27 heard a case. That's a that's a absolutely perfect argument for why we take politics out of the judicial system and, and restore faith in the integrity of justice. Right, of the institutions themselves. It's, so we, how do we get this done? Let's go do it. <laughs> well, we, right, we vote in the midterms. We make right. sure we have, there are eight possible Democratic Senate seats available. Yes. You know, I think, I think four or five are really truly in play. And I think we should, Aim for all eight of them. I think we need to expand that majority. We need to say, we want to get rid of the filibuster. We want to expand the court. We want to protect the environment. We want that Build Back Better bill back on the table. We want uh, voter protections. We want all these things, and we can't get it unless we have a legitimate majority or a filibuster-proof majority, or we get rid of the filibuster in general. And we have to hold the House because the House represents the entire country. And there's questions whether that should be bigger too. I mean, the country's gotten a lot bigger since we had that amount of people. Right. Um, so maybe we need to do that as well. But we need to think long term. The Republicans have always been terrific at thinking long term. They are long term planners. They don't get spun out when they lose little battles. They keep fighting away. It's how we just reverse Roe. This is a 40 year plan. They didn't like it. They worked and they worked and they worked and they worked and they worked to get what they wanted and they got what they wanted. And we get like, I didn't get what I want in the next two years. I forget it. I'm never voting again. You know, that's not helping anybody. We have to concertedly. Somebody said once, and I think it was brilliant. They said, voting is not a Valentine. You're not in love. You are making a chess move for a world that you want. Right. It's a small move and you want to go in the direction of the world that you want. Right. And I thought, yeah. It's all a chess move. So we need everyone to get involved and make a chess move, the right move. And to your point, uh, to your point, absolutely the right move. And, and to your point, though, uh, there's always been a maxim as long as I've been doing this, which, as we've established, is since Grover Cleveland's second term. Uh, but not the first. Good times. First, Good times. Good times. That second term was just rock and roll. But the, 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 <laughs> the thing about Democrats is we fall in love. Republicans fall in line. Yes. And they simply follow the playbook wherever they're told to go. Democrats, when they fall in love, their hearts are broken, they're crushed, and everything. And now it's almost everything is a caricature of itself. On the right, it's a caricature of these people who refuse to accept facts. On what used to be the left, and I think the left-right paradigm is gone now. I, I don't think it means It's gone. Absolutely it's gone. We, we use it, but it doesn't mean anything. And I even think Democrat and Republican doesn't mean anything anymore. But but leaving, leaving the labels aside, the people who we would think agree with us generally in a worldview and share our goals do not see the chessboard you've just described. They see and they pick fights. It's angels on the head of a pin. They pick fights over the smallest things and they become purity tests. And if someone is not 100% in agreement, they are the enemy. And in fact, they're worse than the real enemy. And I've seen that. You've seen that. Because they're betrayers. They betrayed you. Yeah. And, and, and it, it, it is that inability to understand that you can have legitimate disagreement with people with whom you are allied in a cause greater than yourself. And that is the description of this moment with Liz Cheney. I agree with her on nothing, 
Nothing. Uh, she never on a demerge. She has fine. Yeah. Uh, but basically, every single vote she's taken, including on on Roe, all of it, I disagree with. But to me, I put that all aside now. Doesn't matter because she is fighting the bigger fight for all of us, and, and she deserves our support and our belief and our trust and our gratitude that she is a role model for what a statesperson should be. A statesman. I completely agree. And I always feel like America right now is like that car that's spun out on the road and is hanging out over the side of a cliff, right? And we're leaning left to stop ourselves from toppling into authoritarianism. And Liz is leaning with us. She's leaning away from authoritarianism. And I'm not going to be like, "Mm, I don't really agree with you on most things. So don't lean my way. You know, like she's doing what needs to be done in this moment to stop us from toppling over that cliff. And I am grateful for that. You know, I think people are confused about what this committee is for. People have confused it with a trial, an actual trial, and that's not what it's for. So there's people that are like, nothing's going to happen. This is a dog and pony show. It's going to come to nothing. Um, But like you said, this is the court of public opinion. What happens with Garland? What happens with the Department of Justice? That will remain to be seen. I think there's going to be some major movement from the Justice Department. I I personally think Trump's going down for multiple crimes. But the people that are throwing their hands up in the air and trying to give up, who think that this isn't going to come to anything, what do you say to those people? You say that the Department of Justice never operates in public. Right. It shouldn't. The only thing that we saw is a rogue Department of Justice with Bill Barr, and we saw it once before with John Mitchell and... and, and, uh, he wound up in jail. Uh, I think. I think that's where Bill Barr should be. Bill Barr. I think Bill mm-hmm. Barr can use the same cell. It, it, here's here's what I do believe. I think that Merrick Garland has made it clear that this is the most important thing he has ever done, and the department has ever done. I do not disbelieve him when he says that. I believe that we will see an indictment of Donald Trump on multiple counts, uh, interfering with the counting of the electoral vote, defrauding the United States of America. Those are the two central uh, crimes that this committee has highlighted. I actually think the DOJ is pursuing other things, including financial crimes. Uh, And we're not seeing any of that. And this committee has not. Nor should we. Nor should we. That's the whole point. But I I truly believe we will see this happening uh, within the next six months, probably after the election. Honestly, Lee, I don't think that, I, I do think we might see indictments before the election uh, of some of the Meadows and uh, Roger Stones, uh, uh, Mike Flynn's, etc. cetera. Uh, I heard something funny the other day, the Flynn Stones. Uh, it, it, <laughs> uh, meet the Flynn Stones. Uh, oh, Lord, yeah. send them back. There's a, yes, exactly. <laughs> they are dinosaurs. It, it's a problem. They are. But, but if, if they are indicted first, and that could happen before November, then I think what we might see, I think it's possible we will see the um, flipping of a, a Mark Meadows or of Rudy Giuliani. Rudy Giuliani is going to discover that there is no open bar in prison. And it, it, there are closed bars, but no open bar. And <laughs> That's, that's not, that's not going to work for him. So, so if he has, if he flips, if Mark Meadows flips, they have a much stronger case. And I think after the election, I, if I'm betting at all, I, I would bet between Thanksgiving and the new year is when we would see an indictment of Donald John Trump and uh, the people versus Donald John Trump is the next uh, theater, the next case that we want to see on, on live television, because frankly, that would be good for the country. It would, it would. And honestly, you just, the thing is, is that when I see people being like, he should be in jail yesterday, I'm like, no, you can't rush this. You like, you actually can't get one thing wrong. What I would like to see is one day, just 150 people are all arrested at once. And they know that they're arresting them because they have a full case an airtight case, and they're all going to jail, that nothing will happen. You'll hear nothing until this one day where everyone's rounded up 
and they know they've got bang, 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 all these cases airtight. I think that's what's happening. I mean, my biggest concern is that the Republicans are going to lay Donald Trump out as a sacrifice and a scapegoat. And look, he's responsible. As president of the United States, he should be held to the highest standard, not the lowest standard. I think Miss Ruby, Shea Moss's mom, said the exact right words when she said the president is supposed to care for every American, not target them. And I mean, he basically ran those women out of town based on his own lies. But the concept of Trump going away for life is not going to stop this anti-democratic movement that he unleashed, right? Everything he started is a fire that hasn't been put out and it's spreading. And he and his people and his enablers, they've poisoned America, like you said, right? And they all need to go down. It cannot just be him. We cannot make him a martyr either. And to that point, I think anything he's going to announce for president before the midterms, to try and protect himself, try and make himself a candidate that won't do it. It's not his get out of jail free card. But yeah, he will, first of all, he will cause Mitch McConnell's head to explode when he announces. I know, that'll be a good day. That'll be a good day to watch. But, <laughs> but what, what I think we must be aware of is that he does have the ability to increase Republican turnout. And yeah, he does. He, if, if he were indicted before the November elections, that's why it's good that the, even Fonnie Willis in Fulton County, that she's going to take a pause. And I think that that's essential. So once once it's away from November, post, as I say, Thanksgiving and, and through December, I think that's when the climate is right for an indictment, perhaps early in the new year at the latest, of, of Trump himself. But it also gives time, if those other indictments precede it, for them to cooperate. And that's how you make your case. That's how the DOJ has worked uh, effectively. They've never had to do it for a president before, but this is like doing it for a crime family. That's what we're Yeah, doing. it's more like a mob. It's exactly right. If a mob was a cult. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a re, recult. It's a rico cult. Yeah. It, it, it is that. And and I, I have to say, I'm, I'm by nature, Rachel Maddow and I used to be on the air together, and she would call me Pollyanna. I am an optimist, I, but I, I will be a practical optimist. I'm optimistic that we can make it if everybody understands that there is no day after this November 8th. It all, we leave everything on the table between now and then. There are about 100 days to go. Everybody, everybody within the sound of our voices has to understand that this election, I've heard it said since 1968, this election is the most important election of our lives. It was never true until now because no election ever decided whether the Republic would survive. Maybe the one in 1864 did if Lincoln had been voted out. But this is the one that will decide if we can keep them at the door, bar the door to a Republican takeover of the House and hold the Senate, and expand that hold. We have a hope for the future of this beloved republic that that we're lucky to have you in. Thank you for coming here. <laughs> Thank you for having me. I honestly, this is why I love talking to you. You have such an amazing way of putting things, and you know, I. This is the thing. It, this is the most important election of our lifetime, and I know people have heard this said a million times before. But like you said, the actual. Republic was never on the line before. I mean, this is the choice between authoritarianism and top-down government control and a form of democracy that needs work. (laughs) Everyone knows that it's a work in progress, right? But what you're saying is you are choosing a country where your voice matters, or you're choosing a country where a couple of people choose what you get to do. And that's a hell of a choice. It seems pretty obvious to me. Um, I could talk to you for hours, but people have lives, so you'll have to come back. Um, these hearings will obviously continue. We need to talk about all the congressional members that were involved. I mean, they we've got to deal with them at some point. You mean the pardon boys, as I call them? Yes, the pardon boys, all the ones that asked for pardons, all the ones that Trump was calling, even though the insurrection had been put down, he was still working with his people. You know, we need to talk all about them, but you'll just have to come I back. I will come back. It would be my pleasure. And thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for coming, David. So that was David Bender, author, expert, and Rachel Maddow, and now my political guru. 
Much like this conversation, I want you to remember that the 1-6 hearings are simply a jumping off point, not just for political change and legal justice, but for us to have conversations around what's really important and what kind of America we really want to live in. This crisis didn't start, nor will it end with Donald J. Trump. We need accountability and faith in our system, and these hearings are the first step to that. But if we want a better, fairer, less corrupt democracy, then we have to vote against the party who is willing to burn it all down for their own power. The midterm elections are the last opportunity we will have to save this country from what these criminals want it to be. You don't have to love the Democrats to vote for them in November. You just have to believe that a free and democratic America deserves to fight another day. I want to thank David for joining me today and you for caring enough about democracy to be here. Now go out and make the world a better place. Until next week, PG out. The Politics Girl podcast is written and performed by me, Lee McGowan, in partnership with the Midas Media Network and produced and edited by Happy Warrior Entertainment. All rights reserved.